We are in Acts chapter 21 this morning. Seven more to go. We're going to actually finish before, finish on the Advent season and, and jump into our Christmas season um, series called the uh, Canticles of Christmas, the Psalms, the Songs of Christmas in Luke 1 and 2. So that's where we're headed for Christmas. But right now we have a few more weeks in the book of Acts. We, we have come to the place in the book as we've been walking verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, where things are going to get rather arduous for the Apostle Paul. Paul has been living on mission, empowered by the Spirit of God, going about much of the known world, declaring the gospel. Been living on mission, declaring the gospel, and where the gospel has been received in the cities that have accepted it and received Christ, Paul planted churches. Pastor, church planter. He had plenty, op- plenty of opposition up to now. It's not like he hasn't been opposed. Uh, there has been some real hindrance. Even the midst of, of being stoned and, and being beaten and being dragged out 20 years, uh, uh, things are going to change now. He had three missionary journeys. We looked at them. One was long, each one got longer and longer and longer. And then finally here we will see things have gotten extremely dangerous. Yet according to biblical definition of success, Paul had planted a lot of churches. Paul has seen many come to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul being powered by the Spirit for the glory of God, the sole de gloria, the glory to God alone, his fame, his glory, planted lots of churches. People are coming to faith. Thousands have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And up to now, Paul has been traveling throughout much of the known world pretty much unhindered. From the moment of his arrival, though, as we will see in Jerusalem, things are going to change very drastically here in the life of Paul. He is arrested. He is bound. He is imprisoned. And the rest of his ministry, as we walk through the rest of his book, is really a a, a set of reaction and opposition to the attacks of Paul's enemies. He goes from being on the offensive pretty much going where he wants, and now he is on the defensive. In fact, in Acts chapter 13 through Acts chapter 20, we have the history of Paul's missionary journeys, and now in Acts 21 through 28, we have the history of five trials and what happens during the trials of Paul. And we have to ask, why does Luke include this? Why does he not just end with his third missionary journey coming to a conclusion, why does he continue to write to what happened with Paul, with his trials, with his imprisonments? I hope as we look over the next few weeks at this narratives of Paul's imprisonments and, and that we will be able to draw some principles from them as we go through that. But for now, I, I think Luke wants to encourage us that while Paul was in the midst of, of hostile religious folks and a government Um, that really was not impressed, that God was with him. God was with him. Even though Paul was vulnerable, God was with him. God actually took Paul's vulnerability, Paul's chains, Paul's imprisonments and suffering to take the gospel to places that it may have never have gone before. And that's something I think we, we can learn right on the onset before we look at the scripture, is that when you and I are living on mission, we are being caught up in this story of retelling the story of Jesus, we have to understand that that faithfulness to the gospel while living on mission isn't always met with cheers and accolades. It's not always a pat on the back, you did a good job. This suffering, this vulnerability, this brokenness in this world. So as, as Paul lives on mission, we're going to see that's what happens. So, so just humor me for a minute. When I talk about mission, when I talk about the missio day, I'm talking about how God restores and renews and reconciles and redeems all of mankind to himself through the gospel, through Jesus. The mission of God's people is to make known the good news of the kingdom by declaring in word and deed the story that Jesus, the true king, has come to establish his kingdom. That Jesus, who lived a perfect life, went to the cross, there he died, bearing our punishment, our penalty for our sin, absorbing the wrath of the Father upon himself in our stead, and then rose victorious three days later over sin, death, and hell. 
And now, he said, even Jesus says this, there is a proclamation, there is the good news declaring to the world that there is repentance of sin and forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ. That's the mission of the church. I've said this before. If a church is not living on mission with God, on the Missio Dei, loving people, declaring the good news, sharing their faith in Christ, that's not a New Testament church. It's just not a New Testament church. It begins in our homes, it begins with our family, it begins with our children, our next door, our neighbors, our, our fellow students, the cashiers, the Dunkin' Donuts people, and then our community, and then the state, and then the country, and of course around the world. Paul has been doing that. Paul has been faithful. Paul has been faithful, proclaiming the gospel, planting churches. Now it's time for the finishing of the race that was set before him. Our text in chapter 21, verses 1 through 26, is really broken up into two scenes. So I'm going to do something a little bit differently today. I want to look at both those scenes. I'm going to read each one of them. And then what I want to do is look at the historical perspective of the scenes and then just share some principles that you could take home with you. So turn with me, if you can, to Acts chapter 21. And let me read the first scene to you, verses 1 through 16. And when we had parted from there and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, and went abroad and set sail. We went abroad and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. And there the ship was to unload its cargo, verse 4. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with their wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city and kneeling down on the beach, and we prayed. We said farewell to one another. Then we went on aboard the ship, and they returned home. Verse 7. We had finished the voyage from Tyre. We arrived at Ptolemas. And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters, sounds familiar, who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and said, Thus says the Lord, so thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but to die in Jerusalem. For the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to a man of Manson of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So we'll see in this historical perspective both the request of those around Paul and then his reaction. But let me just do this first, if I can. We're back to our maps. I just want to point this out to you. Here is Paul at Miletus, which we left last week. Paul's going to sail through here, right along Asia Minor, come to uh, Palatra, Palatra, how do you say that? Let me see. Um, well, we'll get to there in a second. And then sail all the way to Tyre, which is in Phoenicia, right in here. All right, long sail right here. And then wind up going down to Jerusalem. So that's, that's kind of where we're headed. Okay? So Paul leaves Miletus, we saw last week, and goes southwest toward Jerusalem. Excuse me, southeast toward Jerusalem. If you remember, last week we were in Miletus. Paul had met, he had called for the Ephesian elders to come together and to gather with him so that he can instruct them. And we, we talked about that last week. We said that the pastor, elders, bishops, the synonymous terms uh, for the one office in the church. And we witnessed in chapter 20, verse 36 through 38, this very, very sad kind of farewell. The elders had prayed together and, and, and wept together and, and Paul left them at Miletus and he set sail to Jerusalem. It says in Acts 20, verse 16, that if possible, Paul said, I'm not going to pass through, I'm going to pass through Ephesian and I'm going to go to 
um, Miletus. I don't want to stop there because I want to try to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. So he didn't want to stop. He didn't want to get bogged down. So he wanted to pass Miletus and head toward Jerusalem. The first part of our narrative, Paul gives, uh, excuse me, Luke gives us a, a really um, very clear, concise direction of Paul. And you say, well, what is that all about? Remember, the Bible is history. It's, inter- it's biblical history. It's God-ordained, and God, but, it, but it's history. It's given us the account of what Paul's doing. And that really kind of, when people say, well, the Bible is really just myth and a legend, they don't write myth and legends like this, giving direct places, ports in which Paul went. And that's what's happening here. We see Paul was en route to Jerusalem, it was probably everything I read is on what they call a coastal or a, a, a costing vessel uh, from Miletus. And what that means is there's a ship with a large hole on the bottom. It was hollow so that they can go from port to port to port right in the same continent. But it wasn't really built very well to go through the, the main seas, uh, you know, a far address. So we see Paul on this cargo ship going from point to point to point along Asia Minor um, in, in order to go really a free ride, well not a free ride, but somewhat of a free ride through this ships that were delivering goods. First stop was Kos, uh, uh, about 40 miles away. Next stop was Rhodes the very next day. Uh, the, the next stop was Patera, which is the main port in the city in the Providence. And then if you notice in verse 2, it says that he, that he changed ships. He probably went on to a stronger ship, uh, a, one of a more of a sea-worthy ship, because he's going to go from Patera all the way, I think it's Yes, 400 miles, five-day trip to Tyre, which is in Phoenicia, where was a major port there where it would be normal for them to unload their cargo. So that's kind of where he's going. That's kind of the traffic, which way he is uh, directed. But notice in verse 4, he's in Tyre. They're unloading the the cargo, which is a normal place to do it in that area. In verse 4, Paul sought out the disciples living in Tyre and stayed with them seven days. About 100 miles north of Jerusalem, along the coast, about 100 miles. And the first thing Paul does when he gets off the ship is go and seek the disciples. He wants to find disciples there. Now, just let me point this out. Number one, Tyre was established, the church was established most likely during the time in which there was persecution in the church. When Stephen, the deacon, was martyred and murdered, the Bible says in chapter 11, verse 19 of Acts, that it was those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, that's where we are, and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word of God. So most likely this, this community was, was established through the preaching of the word of God while there was persecution when Stephen was murdered. I say all that, number two, is that Paul probably has never been there before. Paul has never been there. But notice in verse 5, it was time for Paul to depart. All the wives and the children and the men accompanied him to the beach where they kneeled and they prayed together. So here's a community who really doesn't know this apostle, comes, probably heard about him, and there's this, this sense of love. There's a sense of community. There's a sense of, of, of camaraderie among, among brothers and sisters. It also says that Through the Spirit, notice what it says there in verse 4. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. There's the request. Don't go. But in verse 6, Paul says goodbye, boards the ship, and heads south to uh, Ptolemaeus, and once again greeted the brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at verse 8. The next day, he departed and went to Caesarea, again going south for Jerusalem, and he goes to where? The house of Philip, the evangelist, who had four unmarried daughters with the gift of prophecy. Okay, stop for a moment. Just think with me. If you remember chapter 6, Philip was one of the men that was chosen, seven men that were chosen in chapter 6. The leaders chose these men because there was a complaint in the church that the Hellenistic Jews, the ones that were more Greek, and the Hebrew women had conflict. There was conflict in the church. They were arguing or or there was a problem with daily distribution of needs. Probably the Hellenistic Jews were not being cared for properly. So the the apostles and the leaders of the church said, let's pick men full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, and let them serve tables so that we can get back to the word and to preaching of the word and, and for prayer. Stephen was one as well. They picked Stephen and they picked Philip. 
But Stephen was the one that was killed, remember? And he was killed at the feet of who? Saul, who would later be Paul. All right, follow me. Philip, Stephen, both picked of these seven men to serve together side by side. Stephen gets murdered. Philip, remember, goes to the Ethiopian eunuch and he chases the chariot and, and all kinds of good things. He's an evangelist. He's, he's sharing the gospel. And he goes, preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch. He comes to faith. They baptize him. Boom, the spirit takes him. That's Philip. What's happening here 20 years later? Philip, who was with Stephen, who was a camaraderie of Stephen, served in a church with Stephen, watched Stephen be murdered by who? The crowd at the feet of who? Paul, Saul, and now he's inviting him into his home with his daughters and his family. I want you to catch that. That's the gospel. That's the community of the gospel. That's the transforming power of the gospel. I'm not talking about being foolish. I'm talking about the work of joining and uniting brothers and sisters in Christ. And now while he's in Caesarea, notice again Agabus. He's another one, chapter 11, Agabus, a prophet. He's foretold by the Spirit that there was going to be famine around the, around the country, chapter 11. And now here in chapter 21, just like in old-time, you know, Old Testament fashion, he takes Paul's belt. Now, it's not like he's holding Paul's pants up. Wasn't those kind of belts, right? He had a long kind of, you know, cloak dress thing on. He had a wrap, a, usually it was a, a piece of thread, or not thread, a piece of a cloth. He takes the belt off, ties up feet and hands, and he says, Thus says the Spirit. Here's what the Spirit is saying. This is how the one who has this, you know, this is how the Jews are going to, at Jerusalem, will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Notice with me, underline this, notice this with me, that it is a prediction. He is predicting. He is, he is prophesying. He is saying, this is what's going to happen. It's a prediction. It is not a prohibition. He don't say don't go. He said, this is what's going to happen. And there's a request again, because the verse 12 says, when they heard this, the people urged them again, do not go to Jerusalem. So there was concern for Paul. Everywhere he went, there was concern. They, they loved Paul. They, were, they cared about his safety. But look at his reaction, verse 13. Stop weeping. You're breaking my heart. Am I not willing to be imprisoned? Am I not willing to die? Am I not willing to go and suffer? For the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 14, they, 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 they tried to persuade him, but you know what? He was not going for it. He said, they said, let the will of the Lord be done. Even in verse 6, when, they, when he was at the other place with, with the other, when he was at um, Attire, he, you know, don't go, Paul. Nah, let's kneel, let's pray, I'm going, verse 6. So there are those at the request saying, don't go. And Paul's reaction is, I'm going, I'm going. So what do we learn from this narrative? I mean, one saying, don't go. I'm urging you not to go. Paul's saying, you're breaking my heart. I'm going to go. No, you know, you're, it's the will of the Lord be done. I think we could take away from the text how we can know the will of God, or at least come to know a little bit of how to know the will of God. Scholars have pointed out that when you read this text, and if you go back a couple of chapters, it appears that the Holy Spirit is leading Paul, and that the Holy Spirit is saying to the other people, tell them not to go. I mean, that's what it kind of looks like when you first read it. You have Paul saying, this is what they're saying. You have these people saying, don't go. Well, well which one is it? Which one is it? Do you go, Paul? Are you listening to the Spirit? Do you don't go, Paul? And do you listen to the Spirit? Which one is it? It's kind of, when you read this, you're kind of going, what's going on here? But if you notice, and I just want to run this, round, uh, run this to you real quick, Back in chapter 9, if you remember, Paul gets, comes to faith, and Paul and God says, go see Ananias, and then Ananias has a message for Paul at his conversion. You know what he says? He says, I will show you how much you must suffer for my name. So Paul should have no surprise everywhere he goes, he's suffering. God said, everywhere you go, as you declare the mission, as you're living on mission for me, you will suffer in the cities. Don't be surprised. Chapter 19, verse 21. Paul confronts the sons of Sceva. And it says that Paul was resolved. It means it purposed it in his spirit that he's going from Macedonia to Jerusalem. Paul feels like, I need to go to Jerusalem. Chapter 20, verse 16. Paul decides to sail past emphasis so that he might not have to spend time in Asia for he was hastening to go to Jerusalem. 
I, I need to go to Jerusalem. Again, in verse uh, 22 of chapter 20, he calls the Ephesian elders together. He says, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me, but the Spirit has shown me everywhere I go, every city, imprisonment and affliction await me. And then here in our text of verse 14, they said, look, we're tired of talking to Paul. Let the Lord, let the will of the Lord be done. So I, I, I walk away from this text, I'm thinking, Paul had absolute assurance through his relationship with God, through the, through, through the Holy Spirit, he had assurance that I need to go to Jerusalem. I need to go. Why? Paul had money he wanted to deliver to them. Remember, we talked about that. There was a famine, so he's been collecting money, so he wants to bring the finances to the church and bless them while they were in, in a famine and hard times. We know he wanted to get there before Pentecost, probably because of some weather, but also maybe for the festival. It's also plausible, which we shall see, there may be some people talking smack about Paul. Paul wants to straight some theological issues out. It, it could be all the above. Some commentators actually say, and you have Bible commentators, you might have something even in the bottom of your Bible, that Paul was being disobedient. That Paul was being urged not to go, the Spirit was telling him, but Paul was at this point full of himself, kind of like not listening and wanting to go no matter what happens and walked right into a time bomb. That's what some people say, but I don't think so. I, 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 think, I think as you look at the account, I think it's, it's pretty clear and there's ample evidence that Paul was not trying to be disobedient, that Paul was trying to go because the will of the Lord was pointing him to go to Jerusalem. But if you read the account, you can't help but notice that the majority of the people around Paul warned him and tried to convince him, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. You see this conflict going on. Number one, you know, wisdom from God via his word, which is defined and infallible, which means it's trustworthy and true, is then decoded by minds that are fallible. That's the principle. The word of God given to us by the apostles, those who wrote holy writ, infallible scripture, the wisdom of God in scripture, infallible in all of its Genesis through Revelation. But it's decoded sometimes, by, well, not all the time, by minds that are fallible. We can't, we can't mix those two things up. His word is watertight, but our minds, we need to approach it with humility. Some even point to verse four. It says, through the spirit of God, they were, they were trying to tell Paul. Notice it doesn't say, the spirit of God told me to tell you. It just says, through the spirit. Right? You see, you see that? And see, what, what's going on here, I believe, is the struggle between the desires of the heart and the will of God. When the Spirit of God revealed to Paul and his friends the horrific condition he was about to walk right into, they didn't want him to go. They feared for Paul. But, but I don't think that it was God's determined will for him. It was, this is what's going to happen. We don't want to see this happen. Even Agabus only gives a prediction, doesn't say don't go. John Stott says, Luke's statement is condensed way of saying that the warning was divine while the urging was human. The warning was divine, but the urging was human. He points out that even Agabus, when he says you'll be bound, that happens in the next verse. If Paul had listened to his friends, that wouldn't have come true. He would have been a false prophet. So, Wisdom from above, via his word, which is divine and infallible, is then decoded by minds that are fallible. Next principle. Sometimes, let me get it up here. Sometimes, people see things, the same thing, but draw different conclusions, do we not? Sometimes we see the same thing, we draw different conclusions. It appears that all of Paul's friends understood what lied ahead. And they said, we conclude, don't go. Paul looks at all the facts, sees the whole thing, goes, ah, I'm going. Right? Both sides understood the prediction by the Spirit, but Paul's friends turn it into prohibition, yet Paul says, no, this is what lies ahead for me. I don't think anybody had bad intentions. I don't think anyone's lying here. I don't think anyone was really only looking out for themselves. And I don't think Paul had this huge head all of a sudden that he wasn't listening 
I think Paul heard from the Spirit and doing what Paul was told to do by God. I think the clear principle here is that brothers and sisters can simply disagree with how to proceed on that in which God has made clear to us. Now, we're not talking about just matters of theology or, or, or I'm talking about gray areas where all the facts have been presented before us, right? There, there, there's no real clear implicit teaching. There's no clear principle. There's this gray area. We have information. We have all our facts. How do you proceed? I think we should go that way. I think we should go that way. I don't think we should go that way. I think we should go this way. That happens. You see the information, you, 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 but, but yet how we proceed sometimes is very different. Okay, number two, principle from this text. Sometimes the hard way is the right way. You're like, yay. Sometimes going, that's not really good, may be exactly what God wants us to do. Because sometimes, if you're like me, you want the easy way out. Who wants to go into something that's difficult, hard, and you get kicked upside the head? You know, usually like, ah, I'll go this way. Well, sometimes we see this clearly, the hard way sometimes is the right way. And the next one I think we could take from this, I want to say this very carefully, sometimes the majority is not the direction you should take. Now, I'm the first one to say, gathering community, knock it out together. Usually, if you're the only one saying this, you're probably the crazy one, everybody else is right. That's usually the case. But the principle here that we see from the Scripture is everyone saying don't go, and Paul's like, no, uh, I'm going. No, I'm going. Uh, sometimes it'll be those who say, there's hardship, there's trouble, don't go that way, and you're like, uh, again, not explicitly taught, not biblical principles, just gray areas, not really sure how to proceed, got the facts, how do I go? Sometimes the hard way is the way to go. The hard way is the way to go. But, last principle, Christian community is essential to the Christian life. Look again at chapter 20. It ends, when you put those verbs together, they were kneeling, they were praying, they were weeping, they were hugging, they were kissing, they were grieving, it's this emotional overload. The bond's very strong. True gospel embracing will do that. You have brothers and sisters that you have never met before. It could be in another side of the world. And all of a sudden you come in and you love Jesus together. There's an instant unity. An instant bond of unity and love. You see that here. You see they opened their homes to Paul. Some community didn't even know him. They shared their goods with Paul. Do you know that the Apostle Peter in, in, in 1 Peter 4 says that the response to the gospel, in other words, because of, uh, of the gospel in your life, the grace of God in your life, you are to show hospitality, hospitality to one another without grumbling. Some people have the gift, I get that, but everyone is to show, because of the grace of God, because of the gospel, to show hospitality toward one another. It's an, it, it, it corresponds with our understanding of, of the gospel. It's analogous, it, it's corresponding. God opens his home, allows us into heaven, draws us into his family, pours his grace and mercy upon us, and gives us freely the things that we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies and brings us into his family. And then we, in response, invite people into our homes, into our communities to love and to care for one another. Again, there's some, there's some caution. I get that. Okay? But you see this love. You see this Christian community. You see this hospitality. You see the affections and the physical signs of loving and, and kissing and weeping and praying together, kneeling down. They prayed often. They talked to Jesus to each other. They talked to Jesus uh, one to another. And then they prayed together. They worshiped together. You see that in the text. And you know what? They sought the leading of God together. I, I, I realize in this text that a lot of people were saying don't go. But, and Paul's like, I'm going to go. I get that. But if you notice, they were still together. They still sought the leading together. There was no one doing it on their own. There was no, I'm not talking to you about it. I, I, there is a discussing together. There's that place where at least they're sharing and discussing what to do next. And this, I think, is very important for us. Because we cannot give counsel. Family, listen. No one can give you counsel and advice with divine authority unless it is absolutely plain in Scripture. Okay, we can say to a brother or to a sister, stop committing adultery. You must forgive them with complete authority. Scripture teaches it. But there are areas in our life that thus saith the Lord does not fly. 
does not fly. It must be scrutinized in Scripture. There must be a humility where let's talk about this. Let's engage. Let's, let's discuss. Can there be contradiction? Can there be more than one way? There has got to be. Unless clearly taught in, in the Scripture. According to this narrative, you can have real divine insight from God about a person's situation and still misunderstand how we ought to apply it. That's what's happening here. So sometimes people see the same things, they different conclusions. Sometimes the hard way is the right way, and sometimes the majority is not the direction, but still, Christian community is essential. Next historical perspective. Look at your Bibles. Verse 17, we'd come to Jerusalem. We're at Jerusalem. The brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in and with us and James, and the elders, they were all present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brothers, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, Paul, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have had four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expense so that they may shave their heads. This, will all, this all will know that there is nothing in what you have been told about you but that you yourselves also live in observance to the law. But as for the Gentiles, verse 25, who have believed, we have sent the letter and our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what's been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Remember that from Acts 15. Then Paul took the men, verse 26, and the next day he purified himself along with them, went into the temple, gave notice, days of purification would be fulfilled, and then, listen, Offering was presented for each one of them. You're like, really? We're going to look at that? Yeah, actually, that's a really cool part of Scripture. There's a lot to see. Imagine just for a minute, Paul has done his, you know, almost 20 years on mission. He comes to Jerusalem, okay? Large room, lots of elders, thousands of people, they said, came to faith. So there's probably lots of elders. James is there. He's the leader of the Jerusalem church. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's in charge of the mother church. He's kind of, oh, not in charge, but overseeing the church as one of the pastors. And there you have Paul bringing the money. I don't think it was a credit card. I, I, I don't think he wrote a check. I, I, they brought bags of money, I guess, and put it at the feet of the apostles, uh, excuse me, the disciples, with the finances that they, you know, have, have got and given to the church. It doesn't say exactly how, but that's how I imagine, okay? So Paul begins... Listen, you're not going to believe what's going on in Galatia. You're not going to believe what's going on in Macedonia, in Corinth, in Thessalonica, and, and all over the place. Jews and lots of Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus, being baptized in the Spirit, giving confirmation of their salvation in Christ, the message of the gospel, and he's so excited. And they're like, wonderful. And look what it says in verse 20, glorified God together. Great joy. They didn't say, hmm, as maybe I might do, huh, What's going on here? What's going on there? There was no pride. It wasn't pride. It wasn't, you know, sometimes when somebody else gets a job, job you want, <laughs> someone gets the increase in pay that you were looking for, someone gets a better grade, but you got, you know, you know. They praise God together. Although I have to say, it was like short-lived because then the next shoe dropped in verse 21. Oh, but Paul, now that you're here, there are many Jews among us that saying, you are telling everybody in the Gentile community that you should forsake Moses. That the Jews should no longer circumcise their children according to the customs. So I'm glad things are going well, Paul. I'm glad things are going very, very nice. But we have this issue with you. That's what they're saying. You see, some believers in the Jerusalem church believed, and it was mistaken, that Paul was off base in his teaching. The church had heard and dis uh, disseminated slanderous things about Paul could have been unintentional information at its best. Could have been just straight up slanderous and lies at its worst. 
But the word on the street was Paul was going beyond his regular practice of preaching to the Gentiles and not, not needing to be a Jew first and had told the Jews to stop acting like a Jew. That's, that's what they're saying. You see, Paul did not teach that the customs of, of, of the Jewish life, of being a Jew, was evil per se, just unnecessary for their salvation. That's it. That, that, being made right before God, being justified by God is not by custom or by following the law. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's very, very important. And Paul teaches all over Scripture. So James and the other elders, because of the friction, they say, Paul, we want an accommodation from you. We, we want you to pay for some haircuts. We want you to go and purify yourself so that everyone could know that you are not saying, you are not doing what they said you were doing. And then he talks about in Acts, uh, Acts 15 with the four practical principles. But for the Gentiles, you know, we'll just, what we wrote in Acts 15, you know, abstain from this, abstain from that. But you, Paul, we want you to concede, and we want you to look like a Jew and to, to act like a Jew in front of everybody, to follow their customs. So all the leaders got together in Jerusalem, James, you know, presiding over this, they said, this is what you should do. Now, it just goes to show you that the struggle between Jew and Gentile is still very serious in that day. It's been 20 years since Pentecost, and it's been seven or eight years since they kind of resolved the issue in Acts 15 on how we ought to live together, but the issue was still very strong. And before we judge, let's relate, because we get so caught up in our own culture, in our own things, and doing it our own ways. Can you imagine being a Jew thousands of years handed down that anybody outside the covenant people must go through rituals, must circumcise their children, must obey the Mosaic law, the ceremonies in order to be a Jew. And then all of a sudden Jesus comes, they go, forget it? It'll blow your mind. They're struggling. They're not accurate, they're not right, but they're struggling with it. They're struggling to see how Christ fulfilled the law. And that by faith alone, through Christ alone, can we be made right with God. You see, it's one thing to follow the customs of the Jewish life for the Jews, keeping the festivals, circumcising your children for custom's sake. It's another thing to do those things for righteousness' sake, for justification, to be made right with God, to work toward your salvation. It's two very separate things. But Paul here, and I just want to share with you, Paul is not talking about, whenever I talk about this, I just want to make it really clear. Paul, nor anyone else in the Bible, is saying forsake the moral standard of God, that God's moral laws has no application for us anymore today. That is not biblical. That is not true. The gospel does not nullify God's moral standard. The gospel empowers us to live by it. In other words, because that I am saved, because I am reconciled to God, because I am forgiven, because I am received, because I am accepted by God, because I am one of his beloved, because of what Christ has done, his perfect record, his moral record, his eternal death on the cross, I am free now to love God and love my neighbor. That's what Jesus said all the commandments are. Love God, love your neighbor. And when I fail to do it, I know I'm forgiven, I know I am strengthened, I know I can press on. Because, listen, my obedience flows from the love that God has given to me in Christ, not the other way around. That's very important. I don't try to obey so that I am loved. I am loved and forgiven, therefore I obey. Giant difference between the two. I think we can be sure that when we're talking about Paul and the Mosaic law, we're not talking about the moral standard. In other words, you can go ahead and commit adultery. You can go ahead and lie. You can go ahead and cheat. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the ceremonial aspects, the, the, the days, the festivals, the circumcision was fulfilled in Christ. That's, that's what he's saying. So James and the others are not caving in on being justified by faith. They're not compromising the gospel. What they're saying to Paul is, listen, we understand that the Gentiles do not need to be Jews first, like before, in order to be Christians. We get that. But we hear that you're telling Jews that just, they just can't even practice their culture. They can't even practice their customs. That's not what Paul ever said. That's not what Paul ever said. So Paul allows that, and, and, and he understands that. For the sake of the gospel, yes, we need to restrain some of our freedoms and liberties, so that's why he takes these four men, and they go get a haircut. It's, it's a Nazarite vow, where a person would stop drinking wine, would get their hair cut 
wouldn't get a haircut for a long time. The hair would grow. And then after a time, they would go to the temple, cut their hair, and then they would offer their sacrifices and burn the hair as well on the altar. It was sort of like um, fasting when you want to get close to God and you want to dedicate your life to God. You want to hear from God in a very special way. This vow is similar to that. So James says to Paul, look, there's this custom that you know, Deuteronomy 6, about the Nazarite vow. We have four men. We know you're not justified by, by following the customs. We get that. But, you know, it's okay to, to be a Jew, right? Yeah, it's okay to be a Jew. It's okay to follow the customs and, and what we're used to. Yeah, it's okay. As long as it's not so that you can be right with God. Yes, you can do that. So, why don't you take these four guys? Purify yourself. You're in Gentile land. And, and get, let them give their vow to God. In fact, in the Old Testament days, uh, somebody who would actually pay for that vow was seen as very pious in those days. So will you do that? Paul's like, okay. I, 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 I could do that. I could do that. Paul's response, verse 26. Did exactly what James asked. So was Paul selling out? Absolutely not. Paul, Paul reiterates it in 1 Corinthians. If you want to go there, you can go there. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. He's talking about the Jews. Verse 21, the Gentiles, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, okay, but under the law of Christ. I still have to love that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I become weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul says, my aim is Christ. My goal is to proclaim the gospel. I'll do whatever it takes within certain contract, uh, we'll talk about that in a minute, do whatever it takes to lay down my freedoms, to pick up my freedom, whatever it takes so that the gospel is preached, people know and love Jesus, and I'm able to share the gospel with them. To Paul, some people, some people, they know they're liberated, and they use their liberation, F.F. F. Bruce, I had that on there, to, to as almost a bondage to themselves. They're not willing to lay down their liberties, not laying down their freedoms for the sake of the gospel. And some people the other way around. And what Paul is saying, I'm looking at the communities, I'm seeing what I need to do to culturally engage, not sin, but culturally engage so that I have an opportunity to share the gospel. That's why Paul circumcised Timothy, who was a half-Jew, to get into the synagogues, but refused to circumcise Tim Titus because the Jews said he must be circumcised to be saved. So Paul understood that. Paul understood the cultural sensitivity, what was going on around him with the people in which he, he, he came into contact with. So what, 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 I think what we see here, Paul makes it clear that his aim was preaching the gospel. Paul makes it clear that he will be more than, more than happy to, I don't want to say fold, but to allow certain cultural aspects so that so that the unnecessary cultural barriers will be torn down and he can share the gospel. That's a lesson all of us need to learn. The gospel frees us from cultural customs so that we are able to use or not use them for the purpose of mission and the purpose of fellowship. Paul's actions meant that Jewish believers could continue to live Jewishly. That's such a word. To live like Jews. Provided that it does not take the place of our justification and provided that it does not bring disunity to the church. Okay? So Paul says, you want to you do the Jewish thing? Go right ahead. As long as it's not, we're not talking about justification. You want to circumcise your children? You want to do the vow? Go, go right ahead. I, I didn't say you can't be Jewish. Live in your culture, live in your customs, as long as we're not talking about justification and salvation. Be Jewish. Gentiles, you don't need to be a Jew because both of you get saved the same way by faith in Jesus Christ, through repentance and faith in Christ. Very simple. Okay, let me give you a couple things to walk away with. Number one, sometimes we may be asked to engage in culturally driven neutral practices. We're not talking about sinful. 
Not because we have to, but because it may prevent unnecessary problems. It may get in the way of declaring the gospel and unity in the church. Sometimes we're asked to engage in culture, again, not sinful, practices. It may not be something you're comfortable with, but it's going to get the gospel out. It's going to be able to, a springboard to connect with the gospel. Number two, sometimes we may be asked not to engage in culture-driven neutral practices because that, not because we can't, it's going to hurt, it's going to destroy, it's going to be divisive. Paul's like, my goal, I'm a slave to no one, I'm a slave to everyone. So sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. And third, from a great theologian, Kenny Rogers, you've got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. Know when to walk away. Know when to run. Use your brain, right? I, I mean, discern. Are there, is, this something, is this something in culture that I can, that, that I just need to reject, right? Strip dancing for Jesus, no, Right? Is this something that I can receive? I'm not calling the tree my mother, but we can work together because my God created the universe, right? Clothing people, feeding people, serving in schools, we can do that. So there's stuff that we can reject, there's stuff that we receive, and some some things in culture, I've taught this before, we need to redeem, like media and the internet and money. We We don't love money and use people like the world. What do we do? We love people and use our money to love them. So we redeem family and children. That's the stuff we redeem, right? Paul confronted sinful practices, don't be drunk. He received cultural practices, what we see here, and and circumcised in Timothy. He received that. And listen, the Apostle Paul also redeemed practices because he uses apostolic authority and he used the money to serve people. So there's a rejection, there's a redemption, okay, a rejection, redemption, and a receiving of cultural practices. Folks, we've got to use our head. Think it through. Could I do this? Can I do this? Is my conscience clear? Is this clear in Scripture? Is it not clear in Scripture? Is this okay for you and not for me? We've got to think this stuff through. You just can't blanket it, what the church likes to do. All of a sudden, we either separatists, we don't want nothing to do with anyone, or we look like the world and we're not, we're not living for Christ. There's a balance, and we have to figure that stuff out. Open hand, closed hand. You heard me taught that before, right? These are the things in Scripture, absolutely true. Here's the things that we do. It's a little bit different, maybe. You switch it up, you do this, you're a legalist, you do this, you're a liberal, we want to do this. Faithful to the scripture, faithful to Jesus, talk about methods, but the gospel stays here, right? Open hand, closed hand. And what you see here too is both men, James and Paul, have a generous spirit. They love each other. There's a working together in the body of Christ. And you say, well, what is the motive? What, why is all this so necessary? It seems like a lot of work. You know, we gotta say goodbye. We gotta figure things out. We gotta, we, you know, we gotta be in community, and and we gotta try to figure, you know, which direction we're going in. And then there's, you know, trying to get along. There's unity, and there's people's different practices. And man, I'm tired. What's the motive? Look at the last verse. Then Paul took the men, purified himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Now the Nazarite vow and the purification rites that Paul and others went through are, are written, as I said, in number six. Let me read it to you. This is the Nazarite vow. This is the law of the Nazarite. When the time of his separation, number 613, when the time of his separation has been completed, he shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meetings, and he shall bring his gift to the Lord. Nazarite vow. One male lamb, a year old, without blemish, for a burnt offering, and one ewe lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a sin offering. Burnt offering, sin offering. And the priest shall bring before them the Lord, bring it before the Lord, and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. Now, give me two more minutes, I want you to follow me. I do not think we are extreme, I do not think we're adding things to this, but just for a minute, can you imagine this scene? Paul is carrying a baby lamb to the temple in order to be sacrificed. He's approaching the temple. He's approaching the altar with tears, celebrating and rejoicing tears, singing with deep and abiding eternal joy for the one who sacrificed his own self so that Paul can be forgiven. 
retelling himself as he is walking up to the altar what he told the Ephesian church, walk in love for it is Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Retelling himself and rehearsing what, he, what they told in Hebrews that the priest every day sacrificed daily but Jesus Christ offered himself once and for all. Blood of goats and bulls will not do it. Once and all, then he sat down to the right hand of the Father. He's retelling, he's rehearsing, he's repeating what John the Baptist said. Look, Jesus, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then restating the words as he's walking up again to the Temple Mount and to sacrifice for Christ our Passover. Lamb has been sacrificed. Weeping, knowing that this can't do it but it points to the one who can. Moving forward when we have, know that there's hardships in our life, moving forward and discerning what, what to do for the sake of the gospel, being vulnerable, being generous, is because our God did not sit in glorious throne, but became like one of us without sin and was sent on mission to this broken, twisted, jacked up world without sin, engaging the culture, and died from the hands of those who were hurling curses at him so that you and I can be brought into his family. Right? He, God alone, was sent on mission. And let me tell you something. When Jesus came, what did they call him? He was hanging out with tax collectors and drunkards and gluttons. They say he's a glutton, he's a tax collector. Was he? Nope. Did he engage those people? Yup. Did he get a reputation because of it? Yup. Did Paul? Yup. Join the crowd. But Paul understood he was living on mission because his God was on mission. And his God sent his son as a rescue mission to rescue us from sin, death, and hell. And Christ had come and he is the lamb who was sacrificed and slain for your good, for your forgiveness of sins so that you can be part of God's family. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I can't help but see the end of this text and, and imagine what that sacrifice would have meant for Paul. Knowing what he knew, knowing what you've revealed to him about the sacrifice of Christ, and yet going to the temple as, as just a, a way to, to, to make sure that he was able to continue the mission, continue the declaring of the gospel, to continue the unity in the church, he was willing. So I, I believe, look at that lamb that pointed to your son with joy and tears and weeping with great eternal joy. And Father, we pray, Lord, as we respond, whatever situation we may find ourselves in, whatever may lie ahead, Lord, let, let us remember that you want to guide and lead us in the ways that you have for us. But Lord, may we not remember, it's not just the way in which we go, but, it, but, but it's the manner in which we go, and that is telling others about Jesus, looking to engage people for the cause of Christ looking to, to look to love them, to care for them, to, to, to draw them to the place of being able to declare both in word and in deed the great salvation that you have provided for them. So Father, as we respond, Holy Spirit, lead and guide us, we pray. Lead us on mission. Lord, no matter what lies ahead of us, may we live for the glory of Christ and for his fame and glory. In Jesus' good name, amen.